I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Danny Nobis, a clinical psychologist, psychoanalyst, professor, and former chair of the Freud Museum, London. He's authored, edited, and contributed to many psychoanalytic books and journals. His main research interests include the history, theory, and practice of psychoanalysis, the history of psychiatry, and the intersections between psychoanalysis, philosophy, and the arts. He's here to make a big announcement, so stay tuned. You can follow him on Twitter at Danny Nobus. That's D-A-N-Y-N-O-B-U-S. As with all Rendering Unconscious podcast episodes, there is a video accompanying this episode at YouTube. Just visit Trapart Films' YouTube channel, that's T-R-A-P-A-R-T Film, at YouTube, or search for Rendering Unconscious podcast. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. You can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org, for links and more information. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore. Rendering Unconscious is also a book, Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry, from Trapart Books 2019. For more information, you can visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast at our Patreon patreon.com forward slash Vanessa 23 Carl that's V-A-N-E-S-S-A 2-3 C-A-R-L your support is very appreciated thank you so much for supporting rendering unconscious podcast and all of my other creative endeavors hi Vanessa hey Danny how are you um I'm very well, thank you. Um, yes, um, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, re-entering the world. I, I received my first invitation today to, uh, to cross the Atlantic. So mm-hmm. with a bit of luck, with a bit of luck, COVID permitting or Delta variant permitting, we, um, we will be able to... Uh, to meet in person again. I'm, I'm in not Sweden saying... now. Sorry? I'm in Sweden now. I know you are in Sweden. So you won't but... get to meet me. Um, well, I wasn't necessarily talking about you. <laughs> well, what else matters <laughs> besides me? But, but just because you're in Sweden doesn't mean that you can't travel or are the Swedish borders still closed? I think they're still closed. At really? least, I think as of yesterday, they opened. But until yesterday, they were pretty closed. Like, 
if you're in the EU, you could come in and out, but like the UK or Americans, no, no. Really? Really. Huh. Okay. No Americans. Uh, I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hear about that. So even, I mean, I I I assume you still have your American citizenship. I do, but we'll see. I might get rid of it soon. No, but so even with your American citizenship, um, you would not be allowed to cross the Atlantic and, um, and, and, and go to the US at the moment. Well, I don't think they could come in. So I could leave, but I would have a problem getting back in. Like a friend of mine that lives here who's also married to a Swedish man, her mother passed away and she went to the States and she didn't come back for like six months. Right, right. Oh, well, um, look, it is what it is. Uh, We just have to make the most of it. But where will you be going? Um... Well, Derek Hook emailed me um, because I get the impression that he and his co-editors who have been putting together, as you know, this um, collection of books called Reading um, Lacan's Écrit, they, they want to reactivate the series of annual conferences. I mean, it was supposed to be one this year in Edinburgh mm-hmm. after after Ghent and, and, and Pittsburgh, but that one obviously didn't happen. Even, even online, it didn't happen. Um, so I got the impression because it wasn't entirely clear that um, Derek wants to reinitiate that series of conferences and um, is thinking of having the next one in Pittsburgh again, rather rather than waiting. So, um, but but I saw it as. Um, and an, an indication that um, that the world is is opening again, and and that we are finally going to stop being zombified by uh, <laughs> by what we've been stuck with for the past God, it's almost two years. There you go, for the past eighteen months or twenty months, and um, yeah, so so that's that. Um, what else would you like to know? Well, I actually love those books. And I started, before all of this happened, I started having people, well, I've had one so far, but I had the idea to do a whole segment of the podcast that's just talking to the people that wrote chapters for those reading the kinds of creep books. So we could talk about their chapters and have reading the kinds of creep podcast series. So I did Todd McGowan on signification of the phallus. And yeah, I want to continue to do more. So you'll have to come back to talk about yours. Well, that's a very good idea, actually. Um, Because I'm, I mean, you don't want people to regurgitate what they've written in their chapters, but I think it would be very interesting and I definitely would be interested to hear people's stories of 
how they tackled the text that they were eventually assigned to unpack. And, you know, we don't necessarily need to talk about that now, but I, I would definitely be interested to share with you my pain and my anguish <laughs> and my... <laughs> my shame, my embarrassment, my anger, my, my, I mean, I can go through the whole range of, um, of effective qualities when it came to trying to explain this most impenetrable of, um, of Lacan's writing. So, but I think it's a very good idea. Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's the Cree, the Cree, you can't talk about it too much. It is impenetrable, as you said. So. We can penetrate it some, and then some um, more, and then some more. Well, some, I mean, let's face it, some texts are more accessible than others. And that's partly to do with the fact that, that some texts over the years have been discussed more than others, but it's also to do with the fact that over the years, Lacan's style um, did change, I think. So, um, yeah, um, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that the book, as a result of um, of all of this, is accessible to um, <laughs> to the person who who sees and, and, and approaches it for the first time. Um, but, but look, I would definitely be interested in hearing what, what people's stories are, or actually I would be hearing about people's methodologies. Like, like how do you even start explaining to a lay person a particular Lacan text? Um, yeah, because our study group and David Lichtenstein has a study group in New York that meets once a month to read Lacan and I mean we would read something we would read one paper for like two years you know we just like sit and read a sentence and then another sentence and then talk about it for 30 minutes you know we get through like one tiny paragraph in every meeting you know yeah I mean I mean I did that too back back in Belgium 30 30 years ago um and and it's a very interesting exercise but but it, it's um it doesn't necessarily mean that the end product is a coherent and consistent um, explanatory document. Um, so it's it's very beneficial, but uh, but there's no guarantee that what you end up with is um, is more comprehensible than than what you uh, what you started studying. So there you go. Um, so you've already interviewed Todd McGowan. I should look at that uh, um, that episode actually about uh, about the signification of the phallus. Mm -hmm. of, of I can all... send you the link. It was um, probably about oh god, probably a year and a half ago now. That right I, before the pandemic, I uh, I got into this idea, and then of course I tried to contact some people to do their chapters, but then the pandemic happened, and everything was like a mess. So but I'll get back on it. No, It'll you be yours because yours turned into a whole book. So we can talk about your book. And then the other thing that's um, great that I did recently is I talked to Derek Hook and Sheldon George 
and a couple of other people that were in their edited collection of the Connor race. And so it was like a whole panel discussion about the book where everyone could talk about their contribution right. to the book and the process of making it. And that right. made me think also I should have more podcast episodes like that with like several people instead of just one-on-one -on -one all the time. So if you would ever want to talk about like your perversion book, I know it came out a while ago, but it's such a great book. You know, whatever, um, any of them, any edited collection or whatever you want. Or topics, we could do topics. We could bitch about institutes or <laughs> whatever else there is to bitch about. <laughs> no, you know. yeah, oh, sure. No, no, sure, absolutely. We can have topic discussions, little panels. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, um, sure, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, you see, I say yes to everything. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> I've been out you for a year and a half. <laughs> um, <laughs> in, uh, in any case, if if you want me to talk about about, I'm not going to go through everything I experienced again. If you want me to talk about how I ended up writing on Kant with Sad, I would be more than happy to do so. Um, there's actually a group in in San Francisco at the moment who is um, reading both Lacan's texts and 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 in my book, um, but and and they asked me to, you know to participate you know as a, as a plus one in their cartel and I and I said well you, you do realize it's not the function of the plus one to to actually um, be the, the 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 supreme the supreme um uh sujet supposé savoir so don't get too excited because because i might actually make things even more difficult for you when it comes to discussing the text but um um but look uh, you know the text hasn't it, it, it hasn't disappeared because you start writing about something and before long um, it, it turns into something else. And I'm only saying that because um, as a result of that Kant with Saad book, I, I, I got an invitation and I, you know, I can't say no. I got an invitation to contribute to um, a book that will probably be called Zizek and his critics. And, uh, and that will come out, I think next year. And, and they gave me carte blanche as to what aspect of, of Zizek's voluminous works I wanted to criticize. And I thought to myself, well, um, I might as well see what uh, I can I can criticize about his own reading of Kant with Sage, because um, if there's anything that that actually runs through um, Zizek's works from almost beginning to end, um, beginning generally situated in the sublime object of ideology and um, the end that is obviously still ongoing, but you know, uh, let's let's let's, for the sake of our argument, call it um, sex in the failed ab absolute. It is this text by Lacan. So um, so so I spent about two months over the summer 
um, slight exaggeration, um, reading 25,000 pages of Zizek, uh, teasing out every single reference to Kant with Saad, and, um, and, um, and, and having a go at, at, at his interpretation. And, and the purpose of the book is that Slavoj will then respond to each of the criticisms, but I haven't, I haven't received his response to mine yet. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. All this to say, Vanessa, that um, although it was never my intention to write on Kant with Saad, and, and that's the truth, um, when you eventually take something on, it starts to lead a life on its own, and one thing always leads to another. Um, there you go. Very true. Um, but if you want to know what I'm really working on, then um, I'm, I'm happy to, to tell you, uh, and, and this will be a scoop because I haven't told anyone yet. Um, you know how expecting parents always tend to wait until three, four months of, of the pregnancy before announcing to um, to the wider world that they're expecting, probably because well we know why because because the first three four months I guess are are the most um, uh, risky ones in terms of 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 the miscarriage. Um, I, I I I decided to wait three four months to to tell the world what I was doing because because. For, for that period of time, I was still convinced that it wasn't going to go anywhere. But I'm actually in a position now to, to say that um, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm working on, on the new full-scale biography of Lacan. So um, it, it's not going to come out in 2022. Um, and 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 if we end up in, in another lockdown or if we uh, end up in new restrictions, it's going to take even longer. But um, yeah, I thought after after almost thirty years, because that's when Rudinesco's book was first published in 1993, so it's almost thirty years ago. Um, maybe maybe someone should have another go at um, at trying to to write um, a biography of Lacan, which, um, which is quite a task and, and, and which has already resulted, uh, as I knew was going to happen, in, um, in, in various bursts of utter frustration. Um, but um, uh, yeah, I'll get there in the end. Um, How's it going? How's it going? Well, it's going. You see, the main problem, as, as anyone who has ever been interested in the, how shall I put it? I mean, not necessarily in Lacan's life, but, but in, in, the, um, in the intellectual history of the Lacanian movement, or indeed in how Lacan became Lacan, which is, which is actually a question that I intend to run through the entire book. 
before long, you run against the problem that there is no such thing as a publicly accessible Lacan archive, right? So, um, uh, and, and Lacan is probably the, the only major French 20th century intellectual for whom that is the case. Because all Foucault's papers were deposited at the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. Uh, Derrida's uh, papers were deposited um, in two different places, but, but you probably notice his entire library um, was, um, uh, was purchased by Princeton University. So you can actually go to Princeton and, uh, and, and look at Derrida's books and, 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 and if you, you know, if you're really interested, you can, you can even see the annotations that, that, that he made in certain volumes. But, um, so we don't have something like that for, for, for Lacan, as a result of which um, the historian, the biographer, um, anyone who's interested in, in reconstructing, um, I mean, even a text such as Count Witsad, which went through various versions, if you're interested in, in reconstructing the developmental history of a certain paper, you, you run into problems. Um, but um, uh, I thought to myself, if, if Rudinesco could do it back in 1993, then um, I can probably do it 27 or 30 years later. Um, if only because I mean, more archives, I mean, not, not necessarily Lacan archives, but more archives have become uh, publicly available. So after Levi Schroes died, um, his archive was depo was deposited at the Bibliothèque Nationale de France, and uh, and and it contains quite a few, as you would expect, letters from Lacan. Um, so so although although I will, I will know, I do know that I will not have access to everything, even, even if I swear allegiance to Jacques-Alain Miller for the rest of, of my life, um, I have no illusion that I will have access to everything at the same time. Um, you just have to work with what you've got. Um, so, so there you go. It, it's it's been frustrating. Um, I mean, especially the early years. We know relatively little ab about the first twenty years of 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 Lacan's life. Um, although, again, as you may know, um, um, uh, um, at the instigation of, of Miller, who is uh, quite literally um, the proprietor and, 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 and the, the official, uh, how shall I put it, um, uh, owner of Lacan's legacy, um, some new documents were released 
recently, um, including including a, a little paper that Lacan wrote when he was 18 years old. So, um, you know, we'll see what happens with that initiative, but, but uh, there isn't all that much about Lacan's early years. And, and I definitely do not intend to rehash, that would be pointless, um, Rudinesco's biography. So um, it, it'll be quite different from what she did in all, in all kinds of ways. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll see, we'll see, but, but it'll keep me busy for a while. Um, it's like a fun project, a deep dive into Lacan the person. Well, as I said, you know, one of one of the questions that there's a whole background story that 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 is characterized by a lot of ambivalence on my part, vis-a-vis um, -vis publishers who um, who wanted to persuade me to take on this project, and 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 me first saying yes because I can't say no and then you know saying no and then saying yes again etc cetera, etc cetera. but one question that actually eventually persuaded me to take it on is the question you know um how did Lacan become Lacan mm. um I mean how do you explain that when a Cree was published in 1966 um, um, how do you explain that it became an, an overnight success? Um, I mean, I, I, I don't have the answer just yet. I, I really don't. But but it's 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 extraordinary. I mean, um, and 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 I'm and, and I'm saying it's extraordinary not just because. It seems unimaginable that a 900-page book that, let's face it, is um, is we mentioned it before, is is quite inaccessible, if not to say totally impenetrable, would um, um, would 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 be an extraordinary success. Um, it's. At the same time, it must say something about how how French people during the mid nineteen sixties um, either were looking for for something to dig their teeth in, or or maybe maybe the topics that Lacan was broaching were appealing to the issues that that people at the time were dealing with so um yeah how did Lacan become Lacan and what would what would your what would your answer be to that question well I wanted to know what you think about his relationship with the surrealists well look I mean there is no doubt in my mind that, that Lacan was very good at promoting himself. Um, and um, so 
the the question about his relation with 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 the surrealists is is also a question about um, how Lacan saw himself as someone who had something to contribute to um, to surrealism, um, not only as an artistic movement but but as an intellectual movement. And, and, and that requires not only a certain degree of self-confidence on Lacan's part, but it also requires um, a, certain, a, a, a certain degree of courage, I think, and, um, and knowledge about how you can present yourself to, 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 to this group with, with with your ideas. Now, we all know that, well, maybe we don't. Um, look, here is what I think. I, 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 think, I think Lacan was more impressed by the surrealists than the surrealists were impressed by Lacan. <laughs> so I think Lacan was keener to, to know for himself that um, he was part of an artistic and an intellectual movement, then the Surrealists uh, felt they needed Lacan in, in order to, um, to establish themselves and, and to gain recognition. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't think that Surrealism would have been worse off, or I don't think that surrealism would have would have <laughs> um, would have been less popular uh, if if Lacan hadn't been there, if you know what I mean. You know, it it just so happened that he bumped into André Breton, and and they started talking. And, and Breton um, had gone to see Freud. And, I mean, and it wasn't exactly a meeting of, 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 uh, of a particular successful nature as, as Breton writes about, but um, yeah. Um, the bottom line is that I think um, Lacan had a keen eye for for people, for movements, for um, for traditions that he think he could benefit from, both personally and professionally. Um, vice versa, I think is 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 less the case. I mean, the same with structural linguistics. Um, I mean, Jacobson, Jacobson didn't need Lacan in order, in order to do what, what, what he went on doing at Harvard and MIT. Um, but yeah, Lacan clearly thought that he could do something with Lacan and Levi-Strauss and structuralism in order to reinvent psychoanalysis, you know? He did. Sure, yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, or at least up to a certain point. You see, up to a certain point. 
um, because there, there also comes a point where, where without any shame or embarrassment, uh, he says notably in the presence of Roman Jacobson in, in 1973, if my memory serves me right, um, that, um, that he never took anything from linguistics and, and, and that, that uh, if anything, um, linguistics um, could benefit from psychoanalysis. Uh, I mean, this is this is almost a quote. It's in it's in the seminar twenty in 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 Encore. So you see, and that also typifies the way in which Lacan deals with with his quote unquote intellectual friends or his um, um, his his circle of of acquaintances, you know, he takes from them what what he thinks he can use, and and then subsequently he he actually uh, almost holds it against them um, in order in order obviously uh, to to promote himself as as an independent. Uh, almost, you know, self-made thinker, because because the drawback. I mean, the, you see, the good thing about about being part of an intellectual movement is is that you can benefit from from the success of the movement in 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 order to make a name for yourself. The drawback is that before long you become absorbed in the movement and people forget about you. <laughs> So, and, and I think Lacar realized this very well. Um, I mean, it's, I mean, the same happened with, with, with Derrida in a sense, you know, so, so, so Lacan, uh, Lacan was never going to go along with, um, with Derrida's, uh, I think, uh, uh, very accurate and 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 very poignant critique of psychoanalysis because because it would have led to to Lacan losing his own his own idiosyncratic um, status as as the the reinventor of of Freudian psychoanalysis um, and so what you see is that friends come and go you see. Um, much like much like the partners or or the wives or the lovers, they they came and they, and they went. Um, I never understand this this impulse though that people have to pretend that they've like invented things out of thin air instead of like giving credit to the thinkers that they're pulling from or working with, and I just don't understand that, like. I don't have any problem saying all the different people I love to read and just giving credit where credit is due. Why do people feel like they need to kind of be the one that came up with something that's like, I mean, your, your idiosyncratic way of being is going to like pull from all these things in a, in a different way than other, other people would have. And you'll come up with your own kind of ideas out of it. But yeah. what's the problem with like, why do people keep doing this? Because Freud even did that. Freud didn't like want to talk about the philosophers and stuff that seem to have influenced him that he's like, no, no, I've never read them. You 
Oh yeah, well, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I mean, at that point, uh, Freud too was uh, was very good at um, ensuring that um, um, uh, that he distanced himself from from those people. Uh, I mean, Nietzsche to 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 give the obvious example, those people who would clearly clearly. Um, in terms of their ideas, at least, uh, had had influenced his thinking, and yeah, um, um, Lacan, Lacan had the same attitude to um, towards uh, towards his contemporaries and 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 towards those who came before him. But I guess, I guess, look, you know, it, 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 it was more important for him to to ensure, for for whatever reason, uh, to ensure that that he preserved his his own distinct place on the scene of the French intelligentsia, than than it was to distance himself from a certain intellectual tradition, because. Um, you know, uh, inscribing yourself in an intellectual tradition is one thing, um, and by this I obviously mean Freudian psychoanalysis. Um, so, so Lacan did not have any reservations claiming that he was indebted to Freud. Um, but, but that was it. <laughs> well, <laughs> well but, but no, but here's the thing. But, but even at that point, and I was just writing, because the way I write, uh, uh, and I've always done that, and, and, and when I started writing my biography, I, I, I thought to myself, look, um, I, 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 I cannot start at the beginning, not because the beginning is probably the most difficult chapter to write, because we have, as I said, um, very, very little information about Lacan's childhood and upbringing and, and, and his secondary school years, but, um, um, but also, uh, uh, even if you start at the beginning, you, 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 you cannot avoid your narrative being filtered by what you already know about what is going to come. So there's no point uh, starting at the beginning, really. Uh, you might as well start in the middle. Um, but the reason why I'm saying this is that when, when Lacan explicitly started promoting himself as the um uh, the, the <laughs> i'm not going to say designate well i mean I, I i just did as the designated successor of the true original spirit spirit of freudian psychoanalysis that too that too was was simultaneously a way of distancing himself um, from all the other psychoanalysts in France and elsewhere. So, so there, at, at that particular crossroads, you see, you see Lacan inscribing himself in a certain intellectual history, i.e. Freudian psychoanalysis, but simultaneously distancing himself quite radically 
um, from from everything else that is going on um, um, uh, in in the synchronicity of 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 the cyclonic thoughts on both sides of the Atlantic. So, uh, and 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 it doesn't stop him from trying to look for allies, you know. So. So I have found letters between Lacar and Melanie Klein. There are letters between Lacar and, and, and Michael Ballant. And I mean, we know there are, there are let because at least one has been published. There are letters between Lacar and Winnicott. So, so, so he tries to find allies um, because he somehow realizes that um, without allies, uh, his, uh, his name, his uh, his contributions will will not survive. But um, but when he does when he does find allies, there always comes a point where he then actually distances himself from them, um, as if you know, as if his newfound and I think sometimes it's totally illusory his newfound loneliness provides him with a new source of, of, of inspiration or a new source of, of, uh, of, of drive to, to take the next step, you know. Um, and that's, that's something else I've been thinking about, you know, um, would Lacan have become Lacan without all these, well, okay, without the three major splits in in the French cyclic movement during his lifetime you know um, and 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 some of those if not to say all of those were to some extent orchestrated by Lacar himself let's face it right <laughs> so yeah I Whether all of that was carefully planned, I don't know, and, and I don't think anyone will ever know. But, but, it, but it is interesting to see that, um, that almost on, on each of the three occasions when there is yet another institutional rift and, and Lacar is being betrayed by those people he considered to be his allies, um, he takes advantage of it, you know. Uh, Theodore Reich had this wonderful formula called uh, ruined by success, but rescued by failure. Um, but but it's, it's as if when, when you look at it, it's as if in this case, um, Lacan knew exactly how to orchestrate the failure in such a way that he would come out of it with a renewed sense of, of, um, of, of intellectual drive and, and a renewed, a renewed um, uh, spirit of discovery almost. Anyway, all this to say, Vanessa, that um, although I'm writing a biography um, uh, and, 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 and you, can't, you can't disconnect Lacan's work from his life, I think I think I 
I will only be able to do this by also looking at broader socio-cultural, political, and institutional dynamics. Um, but we still don't know, well, we still haven't got the answer as to why Lacan became Lacan. <laughs> well, you're working on it. <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was very tempted at some point to, uh, to start the book with, okay, let me tell you something else first. Um, uh, you are the first person to whom I'm actually saying, uh, so you have the scoop, that I'm writing, and then I have been writing for four months now, a new biography of Lacan. But um, when, I when I signed the contract with the publisher, I could hear people saying to me, um, well, how can you possibly write a biography of a person you've never met? Um, especially since there are so many other people still around um, who on account of them having been in analysis with Lacan or on account of them having attended Lacan seminars uh, would be in a better position, right? And okay, you uh, you were going to. <laughs> Sometimes that might mean they have more transference, uh, or if they well, exactly. had a personal relationship, and you might be able to be a little bit more objective. Well, objective is not the word I was going to use, but yeah, it's a bad word. Um, well, so you have more distance. Let's use it like that. And I thought to myself. <laughs> Yeah, let's use it like that. I'm sure you have your own transference. <laughs> but I still do. I mean, I still do. Of course I do. Um, and, um, and that's a risk as well, of course, that um, depending on your transference to the work or your transference to the image of the person, you you can still end up writing a hagiography rather than a biography, or or if something like that were were, were to exist, exactly the opposite, um, um, a demonography. But but that's not my intention either. Um, but but I thought to myself, look, I mean the fact that I never knew the man, that I've that I only got to know him on account of listening to other people's stories, at least allows me um, to, to compare and contrast or to, 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 um, um, to situate various narratives, various subjectively inflected and filtered narratives into, in, into something that may that may be closer to the truth there you go um let's not call it objective um uh, let's call it truthful which you know is perhaps even a worse word than objective but um but look um but that's not what i was going to say i was going to say something else i forgot now you see, I did lose my train of thought. It's because it's because of the books. Uh, <laughs> they distract me. Don't do that, Vanessa. Oh, you see my whole office. So you want to see this? You see, I'm going to get even more distracted now. 
Oh my god. Wait, wait, wait. Oh my god. I need to move to Sweden. Ta-da. Um, do, do you realize that your office is bigger than my entire flat? Probably. This is an addition that was built under the house in 1884. It was the mayor. This is we live in the mayor's house, the mayor of the town. And uh, this was his office where he met people. So it's like an addition with an entrance. People could come and meet the mayor. So now I live here. <laughs> and there you are. There you are. With my own fireplace in my office. I know. I saw. I saw it. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> no, I might as well say it. I'm, I am deeply envious. <laughs> it's pretty nice. I'm deeply envious because if there's one thing, well, I mean, look, there's there's lots of problems with living in London, but if 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 there's one thing that um, is troubling me more and more is it, it it's it's that this uh, flat and this is the uh, the third flat I've lived in over the past twenty five years is once again becoming too small for um, for the books that's that's surround me so um uh, i hate moving but uh, unfortunately um on on account of what is behind you and the accumulation of them i i will need to move again uh and it's basically what happens you need a bigger place to fit the books yeah 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 absolutely absolutely and um, well some people i mean um Derrida, you might you might know this. Um, uh, Derrida didn't live in in central Paris. He he lived in uh, a southern suburb called uh, Rice Orangis. What a lovely name is that! And um, and so he built himself um, a shed. Um, but I can't even do that because because I'm on the first floor of uh, um, what I think is an Edwardian house. So I can't even build a shed. Uh, Have you seen Umberto Echoes? Well, <laughs> there's like a video of him walking through. I mean, he's <laughs> just like and turning. It's just like I a mean, maze. I mean, <laughs> uh, he's gold. I, he's I gold watch, right there. <laughs> I watch. I watch that. I mean, Umberto Echo, uh, <laughs> not, and not just because of his erudition. Or his love of books, um, but but I think I think be, be, because of because of his because of the man he was, uh, i.e. Um, um, a, a very a, a very modest, a humble, and and uh, and 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 of course very erudite, but also a very funny man. Um, uh, did, did you hear, did you see the interview that was done, I think, shortly after The Name of the Rose was published? And, and, and they asked him, they asked him because he had never published a, a novel before, right? So everyone only knew Umberto Eco as a semiotician, um, as an academic who, who, who writes very technical books about semiotics. <laughs> and, and, and so they asked him, you know, I'm paraphrasing. So how how on earth, at the age of forty five or something, did you decide to to write 
the name of the rose. And he said, well, he said, look, I was in my early 40s. Uh, I'm an Italian, right? Uh, I could have bought myself a Ferrari. Um, I'm paraphrasing. I could have bought myself a Ferrari. Uh, I could have had an affair, right? Uh, or I could have bought myself a Ferrari and have an affair. Uh, or I could have left my, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to make things up, but you know where this is going. He basically said, look, like everyone else, uh, I had a bit of a midlife crisis. So I thought, oh, why don't I try write a novel? Now, um, it's so perfect for him. <laughs> sorry, that's so perfect for him. <laughs> well, it's uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's it it sounds like a perfectly good. Uh, it sounds like a. Per By the way, my midlife crisis is not the reason why I'm writing a biography of Laka. Um, you know, uh, I already bought my Maserati ten years ago. <laughs> <laughs> And let's not talk about affairs, Vanessa. Um, <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's its as good a justification as any for, for, writing, um, for writing a novel, right? So, yes, I did see that video of Umberto Eco, but um, if you want to watch uh, another one that is um, equally good, if not better, um, you have to watch on YouTube um, a video of Dick Maxey's library. Do you okay. know? Have you seen it? Do you know Dick mm -mm. Maxey? Mm -mm. Okay. All right. So um, after, uh, after uh, when we finish this episode of your show, um, uh, you should go onto YouTube and uh, and you enter either Dick or Richard Maxey, and and you'll see what I mean. So, um, uh, but, but there's, a, there's, there's a backstory to this because, because Dick Maxey was at Hopkins um, throughout his academic career. And, um, and Dick Maxey was, was one of the uh, uh, two people alongside Eugenio Donato, who was responsible for the organization of that famous conference at Hopkins in 1966, where Lacan met Derrida for, for the first time. Mm. Um, so, so at some point, you see, uh, at some point I, I, I need to go to, uh, to Hopkins, to Baltimore, and, um, and see what I can find in the archives of Dick Maxey, because um, th there must be some correspondence. So I love doing that shit, you know, there must be some correspondence between Maxey and, and Lacan. Um, um, here's another one, here's another. Uh, I just uh, pulled it up on YouTube, so I don't forget when we hang up. A rare oh. collection, lessons learned from Dick Maxey in his library. Have you got it? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think, um, uh, but there is actually there's a little video on YouTube where the camera follows Dick Maxey through his house, and then mm. you'll see it. You'll see it. Um, and um, I don't know. I don't know whether he's number one in 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 history of of 
the largest private library, but, but he's definitely up there with Umberto Eco. Uh, so how did we get to that? Because of my amazing books. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! 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 No, because because I, because I was saying that. Hello. This part, yeah. No. No. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> yeah, and because I was saying that this flat is too small, um, or starting. You to can't build a barn. We also have a barn, actually, and that's where Carl has all his archives and his books and his publishing and everything. And it's got four chambers, four chambers plus a second floor plus a little other floor on top. So it's like three stories and four chambers. Oh. So. See, to come back to our subject um, <laughs> matter, um, I mean, Lacan himself had bibliophilic inclinations and, and had quite a substantial library. I mean, nowhere near the volume of books that Umberto Eco or Dick Maxey um, had, but I mean, we're probably looking at, at about rough estimate about 15,000 volumes. Um, but, but you see again, for, for a historian or a biographer, um, the problem is that almost the entire library, and I'm saying almost, um, for reasons I can go into if you want, um, but almost the entire library is still in private hands. Uh, it actually sits in Lacan's country house in uh, Guitrancourt. And um, so I will probably have to finish my biography in the knowledge that um, I did not have access to Lacan's private library because I'd be surprised if, um, if, if, I don't know, we'll see, we'll see. But I, I would love, I would love to have a, a, a little feel or, a, a, you know, I would love to do what you just did um, with some of Lacan's books, but obviously what I would love to do even more is is to look at his annotations in in certain volumes yeah exactly i feel like somebody at that intellectual level needs to be yeah like in a public library where people can access it and academics can access it like the national library like you said. well i totally agree with you i totally agree i mean it's not easy and it, and it took a very long time um for an institution to be found that had not only the money, because it's not just about money, it's about space, right? <laughs> For an institution to have the money and the space to take on Derrida's library. But when it was finally agreed that Princeton was going to take it, um, immediately um, the person in charge, uh, uh, Katie, Katie Chenowitz, um, decided that um, this was not just going to be um, a museum. This was not just going to be something that people could come and visit. This was going to be a research tool. Mm -hmm. so, so for the past, 
three, four years. I think Princeton acquired it in 2017 or so. For the past four years, um, students have been going to Princeton to actually look at Derrida's books and, and, and his annotations. And, uh, but occasionally also, you, you know, you, you find bits and pieces of paper you know, and uh, that, that Derrida would, would put inside, as you do, as you do, right, mm -hmm. inside the books. And, and, and so I couldn't agree with you more that um, if, if Lacan's library uh, in its entirety or uh, part of it uh, had been taken, and I'm sure it would have been taken by the Bibliothèque Nationale de France, then... Um, that would have been a much better way to, because that's what it's all about. It would have been a much better way to ensure his intellectual legacy than, than to keep it in private hands. Mm -hmm. But look, earlier on, uh, and then I'll stop talking and then you, you, can, you can say something. <laughs> um, <laughs> I said earlier on, almost all Lacan's books, because about a year ago, um, a significant number of books were actually auctioned by Sotheby's. And it was interesting to see um, which books were auctioned and, and which were not, because we know that, that Lacan had certain books in his library, like a copy of Joyce's Finnegan's Wake, for mm -hmm. example. Um, so that one wasn't part of the auction, but what, what was part of the auction um, was Lacan's relatively small collection of Derrida, uh, sorry, of um, Heidegger hmm. books, all of them inscribed uh, by Martin Heidegger on the last day that he was at Lacan's country house before they went to the big conference in uh, Cerisy-la-Salle. So, um, yeah, um, uh, needless to say, I did not buy um, uh, all, all of the books. Um, so the result of the auction is that the books have now been uh, disseminated um, to various places and various people around the world some of whom um, may not be at all willing to actually share them with researchers uh, in as far as we actually know, because we don't, right? Uh, unless they come forward in so far as we know who actually owns them. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a scandal, Vanessa. It's an absolute, total and utter scandal. Um, and I already knew that before I started writing this biography, but yeah, um, I mean, Lacan here, to give you another one, Lacan is the only major 20th century French intellectual for whom we do not have something that comes even close, that comes even close to the, the complete works or, or the selected works, let's say. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's, it's, 
you know, it's it. It's insane. <clears throat> it's forty years since he died. It's forty years since he died, right? Um, um, you know as well as I do that we have the complete works of Bach, um, um, despite the fact that Michel Foucault did not want his seminars to be published after his death. Okay, it was agreed that they were going to pub be published anyway. Um, um, but Michel Foucault is, is now in, in uh, much like Levi Strauss in the Bibliothèque de la Pléiade. So, so the, the, there are, for all of them, Levi Strauss, Foucault, Bacht, um, there are scholarly editions that if they're not complete, uh, are pretty close to constituting um, um, an edition of, of someone's intellectual output that is available readily for scholarly purposes. And with Lacan, it is literally and metaphorically all over the place. It's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's absolutely scandalous. And, and let, let's not even talk about the English editions, right? <laughs> you know, um, I've resigned myself to, to, to the fact that uh, it's not going to happen in my lifetime and that we'll just have to live with it. But That's depressing. Um, um, I think, I think there are better ways of, I mean, it's a big question. How do you ensure that someone's intellectual legacy is preserved? I mean, Derrida was obsessed, as you know, with, with the archive, absolutely, totally, utterly obsessed. Um, that's why after his death, they found literally 50,000 pages of carefully, carefully handwritten or typed typewritten uh, um, uh, notes for all, all, all the lectures he ever gave. Lacan was less obsessed with the archive, but still, you know, with figures like that, who have proven to be so influential, you somehow need to ensure that the intellectual legacy is preserved. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you do it by um, by keeping things under lock and key, um, by making documents inaccessible. Um, no, or by editing things you put out to your liking. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's the other thing, of course. Uh, you know, it happened to Freud as well, and, and there are still... Um, there are still some documents in the Freud archives that are in in a closed section. So one one of it's probably the only remaining major Freud correspondence that um, has never been looked at properly because it's closed. It's the correspondence between Freud and Marie Bonaparte. Mm which um, rough estimates um, 
would go on for about 12, 13 years, mm. and in all likelihood would um, contain a few thousand letters. So, so that is still under lock and key, and, and there is not even a date on it as, as to when it will be made available to, to scholars and researchers. And um, I'm literally salivating. I just felt myself start salivating. <laughs> <laughs> I want those letters. <laughs> well, you see, like, mm. you see, in this case, in this case, um, me with my baboon. <laughs> I'm very visceral. <laughs> in this case, Vanessa, um, your salivation is probably justified and justifiable. Um, because, I, because I think that the letters, the correspondence between Freud and Marie Bonaparte, um, and look, maybe maybe when they finally uh, will be released, I will be uh, proven wrong. But but I think that they are probably quite juicy, and and quite quite explicit in places. Um, on occasion, on occasion, the salivation that people experienced proved to be totally unwarranted because. In, um, I, I still remember it like it was yesterday. So uh, in the year 2000, you know, new millennium, um, um, a, a very large cache of documents, Freud documents in, in the uh, Freud Archives Library of Congress uh, became de-restricted. So overnight they became suddenly um, accessible to, to, to all researchers without you even having to show your credentials. And, and so people flocked from all around the world um, because they thought, ah, now we will finally know whether Freud really slept with, with his sister-in-law. And it turned out that um, many of the documents were actually rather disappointing. Um, um, because that's, of course, I mean, Derrida talks a bit about that in, in, in some places that, that the restricted archive almost by definition creates the fantasy of, of, of the archive uh, containing documents that, that are explosive and, and, and likely to radically change our perception of, of someone's life or, or, or ideas, but it's not always the case. So in this particular case, um, it, it was actually rather disappointing. I mean, yes, we found some prescriptions and, sorry, not prescriptions. We found some, some uh, notes where Freud put in an order, yet another order for more cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, okay, we already knew that. Right? Mm -hmm. But I think in the case of Marie Bonaparte, um, your salivation, is warranted. I want those letters. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Um, be, be, yeah. Um, um, I know you had to go in a few minutes, but I also want to tell you that 
my new best friend that's become my best friend over the pandemic is Mary Wild. And the last time I had her on the podcast, I've had her on three times during the pandemic. And we talked about you. So I'm she, to say hi. Did you? Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and is she that- said she went to the university specifically because she found your work and wanted to work with you. Is is that episode of your show uh, restricted or is it today? No, I can send it to you. <laughs> we also talked about the Freud Netflix show and, and put, took it apart bit by bit, which is really fun. It's a fun episode. Even if you didn't like the show, it's me and Mary like being super hysterics, like, like fantasizing about what we think Freud was really like. <laughs> It's yeah, great. Um, we both don't think that Freud did anything sexual with his patients like that. He's too much of a good daddy for us. Um, <laughs> I don't think so either. Although, okay. although um, I would not be surprised if um, if the one person, the one woman, who really tried hard, um, that it was Marie Bonaparte. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think even with Marie Bonaparte, um, Freud was a too much of um, a conventional bourgeois um, established uh, rigid figure to uh, um, to indulge in the temptation. He wouldn't uh, rock the boat. I don't think so. Uh, and but that, the, but in letters. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Maybe at least from her side. Um. Maybe yeah, she's throwing well, it well, at him. I mean, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> I love my fantasies, Marie Bonaparte throwing it at Freud. Mm. <laughs> well, I mean, mm. look. Um. There's there's a lot there's a lot I could tell about Marie Bonaparte. We could do a whole show about Marie Bonaparte um, um, for all kinds of juicy um, reasons. But um, just to go back to uh, the Freud Netflix show, I, uh, I I gave up I gave up after three episodes. I, I know. I just couldn't stand it anymore. But, but it would still be fun to listen to me and Mary talk about it. No, no, sure. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, absolutely, absolutely. You don't even have to see the show. No, no. But have you noticed- I think we're great entertainment. <laughs> I'm sure you are. I'm sure you are. Um, uh, that's also why Mary um, is uh, so good at... Um, I'm not going to say attracting people at continuing at continuing to enthuse people. Uh, I'm going to sing her praises now to enthuse people and, and attract them to to come and listen to to her projections series, which has been running now for, um, oh, my God, almost 10 years, I think, at the Freud Museum. And and time and again, um, uh, uh, Mary comes up with with topics and angles that um... it's amazing. She she's gotten me through the whole pandemic. She did the first 
she did the first online course that the Freud Museum had like in April of 2020. And I was like, ooh, the Freud Museum is doing online courses for the pandemic, hooray. So I signed up for that and I've done all of them. And she just had one this past weekend, Halloween weekend on women in horror. And she was talking about abjection and like zombie movies. And I'm like, where did she come up with this? Like everything she talks about is like pure gold. I know. Uh, no, I know. I know. She's like telling me this story and like watching, we're watching these like horribly gory things. And then she's like, so I'm going to bring in this topic now. And she's like, what? I love it. I think it's so I, good. Yeah. <laughs> um, before, before I go uh, back to writing my biography, um, have you noticed though, have you noticed um, that talking of Netflix um, and, and psychoanalysts in, in, uh, in shows, have you noticed that Lacan um, keeps reappearing these days in, in the most uh, unusual places? Um, so he's in um, The White Lotus. It's a great game. He's in the, what is Lacan doing in the Squid Game? <laughs> His book is on. His book is there. Yeah, but you see, <laughs> but, but you see, but um, what what is also so interesting about <laughs> this? What is also interesting about this is is that um, whoever did the captions um, did not really have to go through the trouble of translating the title of that book that just happens to lie on the desk of the missing brother, right? So. So it would have been it would have been totally uh, totally fine for for the narrative for the intrigue to unfold without um, the title of that book and I think it's translated as the theory of desire right for the title of that book to appear in the top of your screen that the fact that it appears at the top of your screen of course it gives more weight to the fact that the book is there and, and, it, and it makes you, and this is, this is episode two, I think, uh, if I remember well, and it makes you think, okay, so what, what is the relevance of, I mean, Lacan never wrote a book called The Theory of Desire. So um, whatever that book is, I should ask my Korean friends, whatever that book is, it's probably a compilation, I assume, of, of papers by Lacan. Uh, and that assumes, because I don't read Korean, that assumes that the translation is correct. But, but it's, it got me thinking, like, like, what's the relevance of the missing brother having read Lacan's theory of desire for the rest of, of the narrative? Um, it's a genuine uh, 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 question, Vanessa. Do you know the answer? Well, I'll, we'll find out the answer because, you know, I told you last time we chatted, not on the podcast, just chatted. Um, I told you I was doing that series at Morbid Anatomy Museum. And Todd McGowan is going to talk about Squid Game. Actually, in the same lecture, is going to be Mary Wilde. <laughs> it's going to be Mary and Todd McGowan. And he's going to talk about the Squid Game. So I'm sure he will talk about this. And Mary's going to talk about... Uh, Polanski's apartment trilogy films like Rosemary's Baby oh, yeah, and yeah. Repulsion. Yeah, yeah. So when is that? Tenant. It's in January. I think it's January 23rd. Okay. 
I shall be in the audience. That'll be fun. Um, because, because <laughs> you see, if it hadn't been on the top of our screen, uh, only a very small proportion, i.e. those people who can actually read Korean and, and who, you know, have an interest in books would have known that Lacar was sitting on that desk. But, but I feel like, I mean, maybe I'm making too much of it. Uh, and I would like to hear what I Todd- I think so. I would like to hear what Todd, <laughs> what Todd has to say about this. Like, I feel like the, the director um, wanted it to be the theory of desire by Lacar and, and, and wanted to make sure that the viewer, uh, not just the Korean viewer knew that this was a theory of desire by Lacar um, as part of the narrative. And, and which of course raises the question then, um, how do you reconfigure the narrative about uh, around, of, of Squid Game around Lacan's theory of desire? Uh, but that's a question for Todd. We're going to than... find out, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Vanessa, three things. First of all, it's always a pleasure um, to come on your podcast. Uh, even more of a pleasure now that... I'm joking, I'm joking, right? Uh, even more of a pleasure now that you've given me the distraction of, uh, of your book background. Um, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I stand in addition. <laughs> um, two, um, I really do think it's, it's a wonderful idea to ask people who contributed to the reading uh, Lacan's Acre series to ask about their experiences of making Lacan understandable. Um, don't start with me um, because I want, I want to hear from other people. <laughs> I will um, get on it. That'll be my new project for 2022. I'll see how many I can bust out. I'll focus um, on it. Well, I can't imagine anyone not being willing to talk about it. I mean, um, and I'm saying that because um, I can't believe that my pain and my anger um, is, 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 is mine and mine alone. No, so, I think just from Todd's episode, you'll hear he, was, he had a similar... Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I want to hear about, <laughs> it really I, works through some things to write yeah. that. But I also I would also like to hear about other people's methodology, like like because okay, and then we're going to stop. Like like my first obstacle was not so much the fact that I was confronted with a text that even Lacar says is totally incomprehensible. So even Lacar himself says it. But my first obstacle was like, what method am I going to use in order to write something coherent for someone who knows nothing about Lacan, about something that is totally incomprehensible? Like, like you know, so I would be really interested to hear about how people actually approached the text in order to arrive at their, um, their explanatory document. Um, thirdly, um, it's always a great pleasure chatting to you. Um, I, I, I feel like once again, I've been ranting for an hour and a half. The rant man. But, but, <laughs> I am the rant man. 
But now you know, now you know, uh, Danny Nobis is writing a new biography of Lacan, um, which will be the first one in, in, in uh, 30 years or so. And, uh, and every so often you will hear about it. And we look forward to it. Thank you so much, my dear. Thank you, Danny. Thank you. Thank you. Don't forget, don't forget to look at Dick Maxey's library. That's why I pulled it up. Yeah. And tell me what you think about it. All right. And I'll send you links to Mary and Todd's signification of the phallus so that you can Please. have easy access to them. Please do. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Danny Nobis. For more, you can listen to our previous discussions, Rendering Unconscious, episode number 67, as well as episodes 24 and 25. And follow him on Twitter, at Danny Nobis. You can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org, for links and more information. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore. And now, the track, These Boots. Just got a brand new pair from the album Conceive Ourselves, a collaboration I did with Pete Murphy. Available at Highbrow Low Life's Bandcamp page. That's highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com. Enjoy. These boots are made for walking. Just got a brand new pair. These boots are made for walking. Just got a brand new pair. These boots are made for walking. Just got a brand new pair. These boots are made for walking. Just got a brand new pair. However, one of these days, these boots will drug the psyche of us all. Drug the psyche of us all. Drug the psyche of us all. These boots are made for walking. Just got a brand new pair. These boots are made for walking. Just got a brand new pair. These boots are made for walking. Just got a brand new pair. These boots are made for walking. Just got a brand new pair. However, one of these days, these boots will drug. You. One of these days, these boots will drug. You. One of these days, these boots will drug. You. One of these days, these boots will drug. You. Drug. You. Drug. You.